Hello and welcome to episode four of the Baseball Seems Podcast. I am your host, Jake Sauberman. As always, here with my partner, Noah Guarini. Noah, how we doing? Doing really good. Um, yeah, not much really going on in the baseball world recently. Um, now we're going to have to fill in some space here. Yeah, but... Um, you know, we're still we're getting inching closer and closer to that uh, that glorious state when pitchers and catchers report. Uh, we're getting there. We're still kind of digging ourselves out of the snow here, but um, you know, we're we're getting closer and closer. And I think, you know, obviously as we get closer, the news is going to pick up. We're going to more to talk about, more to get excited about. But um, yeah, so basically, uh, the only real major thing, deal, whatever, however you want to slice it, was um, Whit Merrifield signing an extension with the Kansas City Royals. I mean, move over Machado and Harper. Yeah. This is the news of the winter. I mean, Whit Merrifield, is there a more household name than that? A uh, genuine star. Although, in all seriousness, the guy's kind of kind of a, mo- a quiet monster. Yeah, I know. He, he's kind of burst onto the scene very quickly. Um, he's kind of a weird case where he's he's 30 years old. He only has, I want to say he only has three years of MLB experience. Two so, and a half. Two and a half, yeah. So, he's... um. It's kind of a weird case where he, he was in the minors, kind of rotting away down there. Got a shot in the big big leagues and kind of ran with it. So, uh, yeah, Whit Merrifield signs a four-year, $16.25 million extension over those four years. Um, he can kind of boost that up to, you know, a little bit more with some, you know, checkpoints and milestones and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, think, um, I think you get $2 million more in incentives. So. Yeah, so not that much. But, um you know, you kind of look at it quickly, look at his numbers, look at the two and a half years he has had in the big leagues, and you kind of think to yourself, hey, that is a bargain. Um, but while it is a bargain, you know, at face value, there are some weird kind of things that are going on with Whit Merrifield um, and kind of his years of service, his arbitration years, his age, all that kind of stuff. So it's definitely a little little more complex of a, an extension then at first glance, uh, Jake, what are your thoughts on Whit Merrifield's four-year extension? I mean, I guess the best way I could put it is Whit Merrifield stole 45 bases last year for the Royals, and the Royals are better at stealing than Whit Merrifield. Uh, this is just a ridiculous bargain of a contract. Uh, four years, $16 million, like you said. This guy was a five-win player last year. And I know we were talking about a couple weeks ago the like the second base market when those four year deals went down, um, and we were talking we were saying like second base is a weak position around the around the MLB, and we we're trying to list like the best second baseman. You know, there's Jose Altuve at the top, and then number two, I think you really have to say is Whit Merrifield is the second best second baseman in baseball. I mean, you get, obviously Javi Baez is there, but he kind of roams around a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, Whit Merrifield is is clearly one of the premier guys at his position. Um, and yeah, like you said, the service time super weird, like 30 years old and still has two years, um, left of arbitration and, um, it's just weird, but like, I, the, the news around this story is ridiculous too. So there's an ESPN headline today. Um, that <laughs> was, let's, let me read this. Uh, Royals change Merrifield's life with contract. <laughs> What a ridiculous headline in 2019 for a guy who just made four years, 16 million, uh, when he's worth technically about like 20 to 30 million a season, just based on his, his production alone. Um, like, I feel like this sort of this headline sort of embodies the way that that 
baseball's financial system is is heading, where guys just aren't making what they're worth anymore. Like teams, everyone wants to employ the money ball strategy. Everyone wants to look like the crafty, efficient team. And yeah, that's like it's a good strategy to to use. But I feel like it's just it's left this gigantic gaping hole at the top of the free agent market, like we're seeing with Machado and Harper still in the market. It's almost February now, and. A guy like Whit Merrifields, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to say like settles for four years, sixty million, because like he didn't even test the open market as an extension, of course, um, and he's far away from testing the open market. But this is this is just like a weird, a weird thing. So I think I think the biggest point and you just said it is he is so far away from even being able to test the open market. And so when I first saw the deal, I too, I thought like, right, this is a bargain. For the Royals. And I still do think that they got a really good deal for Whit Merrifield. But when you look at the kind of player he is, he's a speed guy, he's a contact guy, and he's a good defender. Those kind of guys, I mean, I'm not going to be shocked. So Whit Merrifield, before this extension, his pre-arbitration years, went up to his age 33 season. So the question is, what kind of player is Whit Merrifield going to be in three, four years, because his speed is obviously going to decline. That's just kind of how that works. He's a contact guy. He's not really a power guy. Um, those kind of players, two things. They don't age that well, and two, they don't do well in arbitration. Um, you know, when you go to that arbitration judge or whatever, they're not getting compensated that well. So, you know, I think from Whit Merrifield's perspective, he's thinking, all right, this offer's on the table now. Let me cash this in now, and because in four years, dude, he's had two and a half years in the big leagues. That's not a lot of time. He's 30 years old, so I think there's risks in both ways here. Um, so I just, I still don't think it's a good deal for the for the Royals, but not as crazy of a deal as some people think. Just because he is 30, he does play the type of game that he plays. How is that going to age? And um, those are my biggest questions with Wood Merrifield. Yeah, I mean, that's a genuine concern for a speed guy at age 30. I mean, you saw it. I, I think the, the headlines were kind of in a similar light when Jacoby Ellsbury signed his, his free agent deal. That, like, this is a horrible contract for the start. He's, he's already 30. He's a speed guy. You're giving him, what, six, seven-year guarantee. Um, his speed will obviously decline, and that and injuries did happen. And for a guy like Whit Merrifield, you can obviously, I mean, age catches up with everyone. Um, but I mean, it is still important to know, like he was 30 last year and that's when you would expect this speed, maybe to start to decline. And he was the sixth most valuable base runner in baseball last year. He stole 45 bases. Like I said, led the American league, um, yeah, he's worth 7.4 base running runs. Um, he really just had a complete all around game. Um, uh, it, it's, I guess it's just kind of unusual to see a guy like so blatantly not bet on himself. <laughs> like... Yeah, like, the the decline probably is inevitable, and it's, like, it's going to happen sooner or later, but it's just weird to see, like, him just, like, cash in kind of early. Not, like, early age-wise, but early into his career. Um, but, again, it's just a completely unusual situation to see a, a player so productive break on the scene so late um, that usually, you know, he's still in his pre-arbitration years at 30. That usually happens to a guy when they're 24, when they're, like, you know, when they're a five-win player, like Witt is. Um, so, yeah, just a weird deal. And I think another part of this this whole angle is this Royals 
infatuation with speed. Uh, we saw it in their World Series teams in what, the 2014 and 2015. Um, they were just sort of built like Lorenzo Cain, Jared Dyson, of course, Terrence Gore, that pinch runner in the playoffs. Um, they, they always sort of built their roster around like, just being fast and playing defense, and that's why projections and analysts always hated them. They always were like, this team is the most overrated thing. They're like, this success isn't going to last, and they somehow were, the world were somehow able to prove them wrong. Um, and now you see this offseason they brought in Billy Hamilton, um, and now they're locking down Wit. They're still sort of testing this this strategy of, of speed, and you don't really see that in any other team in baseball. I think you see the opposite trend, where guys are stealing less and less bases every year. Um, you're not seeing you know 40, 40 stolen bit like 45 stolen bases for Whit Merrifield. That's incredibly rare in today's game, like because guys realize. Uh, the math shows that if you're not stealing bases at a 75% clip, you might as well not even try. Uh, it's like statistically inefficient for you too. So, the, for the Royals to to try this strategy that seemingly seemingly leaves very little margin for error, um, what do you think about that? I mean, it has worked in the past, but it's still super risky. Yeah, I think their whole kind of World Series run was this depth by contact and speed kind of strategy that they use where they put the bat on the ball they ran the base as well and they kind of manufactured runs that way but since that run like you said the MLB kind of it's straight completely away from that from that strategy where you know launch angles and home runs and power and doubles and all that kind of stuff so I mean that's not to say that it can't work because you know there's always you know two ways to skin a cat I guess so you know these most of these teams are going home run heavy and power heavy and that certainly doesn't mean like mean that the Royals can't do what they're doing, but I do agree it's a risky approach um, because you know that that's tough to pull off perfectly. And I think to compete at the level they obviously want to compete at, you need to pull off that kind of strategy perfectly. So um, definitely risky, definitely interesting, definitely you know different from the rest of the league. Um, but you know Whitmerfield, if that's the, if that's the kind of team you want to build, Whitmerfield's you know not a bad guy to to build that around. Um, I do want to bring up one one last point about him. That this kind of did he makes he makes a good trade bait if they're ever out of it. Um, yeah, he's cost controllable yeah. now for four years, and if he keeps up his level of play, I mean, yeah, especially given the weakness at second base that seemingly every team has. Yeah, so you know if the Royals are out of it at the deadline, which you know is by by all means very very possible. Um, Definitely can see him being flipped just because he is so cost controlled, he is so cheap, and, and there are a lot of teams with holes in second base that could use, you know, a good glove, a good good contact bat, and a speedster to kind of have for their for their late season push. So definitely is also something to keep an eye on with Merrifield. But um, for now, he is a member of the Kansas City Royals, and he keeps up what he's doing. He's playing far below his market value. But um, again, we'll have to see how he ages. You know, how he looks when he actually would have hit arbitration. Uh, very interesting, very interesting. Yeah, so now we might as well get on to the only other real splash of the offseason uh, this past week, which was uh, A.J. Pollock signing with the Dodgers. Um, seemingly the easily the biggest domino to fall in, I don't know how many weeks. Um, yeah, the center fielder formerly of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, his market was extremely slow to develop, obviously. You heard rumors about the Braves. You heard the Mets name thrown in there. Um, and obviously the Dodgers have, have been taking a look at him. 
Um, besides that, I don't really, I can't really name a team with certainty that was in it. I'm sure the White Sox have probably poked around the Padres. They, those two teams have sort of been interested in everyone. But um, yeah, AJ Pollock, kind of a quintessential five-tool player when he's healthy, and that's a big if um, because in his whole career, he's taught the 140-game plateau once. Uh, he's taught the uh, 120 plateau no times in the last three seasons. Um, he's just, you know, an injury liability. And um, playing that position, it's not really what you want. But I think if there was a team that could pretty much sign an injury injury risk player for minimal risk, it would be the Los Angeles Dodgers. And they're just ridiculously deep, 40-man roster and platoons at every position. And if A.J. Pollock misses time, I don't even think, like, they flinch. Um, and I don't think you could say that about much of any other team, especially even – I mean, they dealt away Matt Kemp and Yasiel Puig, and it seems like they all, they still have, like, five other dudes on the death chart. Um, so, yeah, I think it was, what, a five-year, 60 million, four-year, 60 million? Four years? Fifth, fifth-year option. Fifth-year option. Um, decent amount of money, but – Less than I would have projected at the beginning of the offseason, just given how good Pollock has been when he's healthy. I mean, going back to his last fully healthy year in 2015, when he was an all-star, he had a seven-win seven season. I mean, legitimate MVP candidate, gold glove, um, the whole nine. So um, what was your initial thoughts on the Pollock deal? So initial thoughts were, all right, this guy's an injury liability. I looked into it, though. His three major injuries, slid to home during a preseason game in 2016 and broke his elbow, groin strain in 2017, and then in 2018 he broke his thumb. So those are two very bad luck injuries and only one kind of, you know, muscle, soft tissue injury. So it's not always hamstring strains and groin strains because that's usually what's kind of concerning. Two broken bones, that's some bad luck. And so then when I got that, I – love this deal for the Dodgers because if he doesn't have that bad luck and he can stay on the field, he is such a perfect fit for them, a right-handed outfielder that can rake like he can when he's healthy. I think this is an unbelievable signing for the Dodgers. Um, couldn't be more of a perfect fit for them. And like you said, if he does get hurt again, which I like, I don't think you can assume that he's going to get hurt just because of the type of injuries he's had. Um, you know, I don't like. it's not fair to assume that he's going to break another bone because that's just not something that you kind of take into account when you're when you're predicting a guy's injury his, or injury future. So um, I think it's a great signing for the Dodgers. Uh, so last year, he um, out of 214 players with at least 400 plate appearances, he had the 10th lowest soft hit rate and the 20th best hard hit rate. So the guy hits, and when he's on the field, he's a good defender, right-handed bat for the Dodgers. He rakes. I think it's a perfect, perfect, perfect signing for them. If I was a Dodgers fan, I would be very, very happy about this deal. Yeah, I just want to emphasize the right-handed bat aspect of this even more. Um, I think the biggest flaw of the Dodgers that was kind of exposed, especially in the World Series when they got to the Red Sox with all the lefty starters that they threw at them, um, the Dodgers' weakness to lefties was just like blatantly clear. Um, yeah, so like I mentioned, they, they have pretty much have a platoon at every single position. Their lefty lineup versus righty lineup just looks completely different from each other. Like, entire, like names are in and out, moving around the lineup every, every which way. Um, but it's against lefties, I think they're weakest because you look at some of their most dangerous hitters, like Cody Bellinger, 
uh, Jock Peterson, even Yasiel Puig with crazy reverse splits last year, um, couldn't hit lefties. Um, yeah, Yasmani Grandal last year. Uh, obviously, some of those guys aren't still with the team, but there was a... Muncy. a yeah, Max Muncy. Hundred forty games for the Dodgers. He doesn't need to do that. I think that if they they can get a good one hundred twenty games out of him, give him plenty of rest, keep him nice and healthy, and uh, with his level of talent, I have I have no doubt that he'll fulfill his end of the deal. Yeah, and I think um, he's also a really good defender. I think uh, outfield with him, Bellinger, and I don't even know Vertigo, maybe who they put in there. But this is what I want to say: uh, pre-injury, so pre-broken thumb last year. Which if you ever held a baseball bat, you know it's tough to do coming back from a broken thumb, um, any kind of hand injury when you're hitting is just creates a huge liability when you try to come back, unless you get really lucky. Uh, we saw it with Xander Bogarts when he broke his wrist. Um, So before his injury, he uh, had 166 plate appearances, and he had a slash line of 293, 349, 620, with 11 home runs, good for a 152 weighted runs created plus, with a 969 OPS, which you extrapolate to the whole season, you're pushing like top five in the MVP in the NL. Easily. Uh, easily I mean, yeah, easily. especially with the NL week last year, but any even, even if it wasn't, um, just a really, really good year. And then post-injury, he struggled a little bit. Only good for 704 OPS, uh, 86 way to run squared plus, 10 home runs, and you know, close to double the at-bats, or a little bit less than double the at-bats. But, um, yeah, so I think coming back from a broken thumb, that's not an easy thing to do. So uh, if, if Paul can stay healthy, if he can you know, kind of get rid of some of his bad luck, uh, like I said before, he's a great addition to this lineup. Provides a little bit of balance, really good defense, and uh, – not Harper, but you know he's he's going to be a really good deal at twelve million a year if if he stays healthy. I think the biggest shock for me in this deal isn't the whole Pollock to the Dodgers thing because, I mean, yeah, you look at it any which way, it's it's a very solid fit. It just simply makes sense. I think just a lot of people were expecting the Dodgers to be in on Harper till the end, and I don't want to say they're out of it, but like this is kind of like a Yankees with Machado post. Tulowitzki and LeMahieu, it just feels like they sort of moved on to plan B. Um, and yeah, so <laughs> with the Harbor sweepstakes, which has just been confusing since the start, who's in, who's out, I mean, I guess we can rule the Dodgers out now pretty much, and that leaves, I don't know, the Nationals, Phillies, and White Sox. And yeah, I mean, two of those three teams are also the finalists for Machado, so... Um, it's going to be really interesting to see how this shakes out. I feel like we've been saying that every week for forever, but one day it'll happen. Um, but yeah, it's just another little piece of fallout from this deal, I'd say, besides just the fit itself. Uh, but yeah, that's unfortunately just about the only news that's gone down in the past week or two. Um, thanks to Harper and Machado, this offseason has been very slow. Uh, guys like Keigel and Kimbrell, you don't even hear about. There's like no rumors surrounding either of them right now. Um, so we're just sort of at a market stall. So thanks to AJ Pollock and Whit Merrifield for giving us something to talk about. Um, so yeah, now we're going to shift gears. And um, what I want to do is, you know, sometime before the season starts, I want to get to uh, each division 
in baseball, six of them, and do a little preview, give our predictions, the state of each team, um, who, who got better, who didn't get better, um, basically just our general thoughts, and we'll go pretty in-depth on each team. And we're going to start with the NL Central for no other reason than I saw, I just happened to see the Zips projections for 2019 come out about the Central, and a very interesting thing uh, was in there. The projected to finish at 79 and 83, last place in the NL Central, were the 2018 NL Central champions, uh, Milwaukee Brewers, who were one game away from the World Series last year. Uh, They're projected by Zips to finish, I want to say, 17 games worse. I believe they won 96 games last year. Something like that. Um, Yeah, so that's obviously not a good look for them, but... It's weird because they didn't lose anyone in the offseason. Like, no one left their team. Uh, Sure, they didn't really go out and get anyone, but they're pretty much the same Brewers we just saw win 96 games and finish one game away from the World Series. Um, So, yeah, I guess just to kick off the conversation, uh, are you surprised by this projection? Obviously, projections aren't facts by any means, but it's still weird to see such a drop-off. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a little bit too big of a drop off. Now, I do expect the Brewers to regress from last year. Um, you can't look at their starting rotation; it's not that good. Now, I know like they had a great year last year, but I would expect their rotation to regress last year. Just looking at the names on it, looking at the talent on it, all that kind of stuff. Um, another guy, Christian Yelich, MVP last year, unbelievable year, unbelievable baseball player. Not going to put up the slash line he did last year, I don't think. I think that's a very tough sell um, if you think that he's going to be able to do what he did last year. I think he's still going to be an unbelievable baseball player. He's going to do a lot of damage. I just don't think he's going to put up the numbers that he did uh, last year. Uh, Lorenzo Cain, another guy, uh, entering his age 33 year, I want to say. Again, another guy that you're thinking eventually the clock's kind of running out on him. Um, not saying that's definitely going to be this year. I'm not saying he's going to fall off a cliff that, this year, but regression would not surprise me. So I think they have a roster that, quite frankly, overachieved last year. Do I think they're going to finish last in their division this year? No. I think that projection is a little too too tough on Milwaukee, but um, I do think they, they most of their team regresses, and uh, they do not win 96 games again. But again, they do not finish last in the NL Central, so... Uh, those are kind of my thoughts on the Brewers. I still think they're a solid team, not as good as they were last year, um, but you know they'll compete. They'll they'll be an interesting team to, to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think I agree with most of your takes there. Um, the starting pitching is definitely the team's weakness. It was last year. It continues to be. Um, yeah, like you look in the names, Julius Jacin, Chase Anderson, Zach Davies, Brandon Woodruff. These are all middle, back-of-the-rotation guys on a real World Series contender, which I would say, the, I mean, the, definitely the Brewers were last year, um, and these guys were pitching, you know, at the forefront of the team's most important games and somehow getting by. Um, when I say somehow, I mean because of their bullpen, which is they have, I, I would say, simply the best back end of the bullpen in baseball, um, led by Jeremy Jeffress, Corey Knable, and, of course, Josh Hader. Uh, those three guys are just about as good as it gets for seven, eight, nine, whichever way you want to order them, especially Hater who can give you multiple innings, no problem, and just strike out the world. Um, but yeah, it's, in the playoffs, it's obviously very different how you deploy your pitching staff than the regular season. 
and they were able to lean on their bullpen every game in the playoffs from the fifth inning on, which obviously doesn't work over 162 games. Um, then again, to on the flip side of the coin, they did win 96 games in the regular season. How they did that with their with their starting pitching, not entirely sure, and I think that's what Zips is asking a similar question. Um, but one thing I really want to point out is Jimmy Nelson missed all of last year with a torn shoulder. Um and going at 2017, he was by far the ace of the staff. I mean, he was he was cementing himself as like a true ace in baseball, uh, which I think flies maybe a little bit under the radar. He had a major breakout season. He had a 3.49 ERA through 29 starts in 2017. I uh, threw 175 innings, struck out 199 for 10.2 strikeouts per nine. You pair that with two and a half walks per nine. That's just about as elite as your strikeout to walk ratio is going to get for a starting pitcher, 10 to two and a half. Um, let up less than one homer per nine, which is which isn't that easy at Miller Park, which is a hitter stadium. Um, yeah, he finished ninth in the Cy Young voting that year, and then we just didn't hear from him last year because he was he was rehabbing. Um, he says he'll be back for opening day. I think that is an aggressive uh, return date. I would expect him back more like May or June. But when he comes back, that'll be a huge boon for that rotation. He'll he'll probably take his place at the, one of the top two spots there. Um, but yeah, that's the pitching and then, and then going into the, the offense a little bit. Um, I agree. Yelich, as good as he is, I mean, the power he put up, at least from a power standpoint is something that he's just simply never done. Uh, he's always struck me as like, yeah, he can hit 315 in a season easy with, but he'll do it with like 20 home runs and, you know, 45 doubles rather than 36 homers last year. And just you know, blast the ball out of the park. He's not John Carlos Stanton. He's Christian Yelich. Is the way I always viewed him. But I guess we'll have to see whether that's a fluke or not. Um, I don't think the the data is like damning in, it, in against his favor. I don't think like he was what he did last year was like a statistical fluke. I just feel like that's just a Christian Yelich we've never seen. So it's unlikely they'll do it again. Um, but still, I mean, he's he's good for a five one. Five one season next year, no matter what. Um, my big question is Lorenzo Kane. Um, this guy is very much on the wrong side of thirty. He's a defense and speed first player, even though his bat it still does play pretty well, actually like very well. I mean, he's a seven win player last year. He's just, I mean, he's a, like we were talking about Pollock. He's like Pollock if he stayed healthy every year. Uh, he's as five tools as it gets, but he just finishes age thirty two season. Um, one of the most valuable base runner in baseball, which provides a good amount of his value and his elite glove in center field. Do you think we he might see a little bit of a cliff dive at age 33? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always tough to kind of predict that because you know, when he had such a good year last year, it's tough to see him you know, just fall off a cliff. It's almost like the Tom Brady syndrome where you keep waiting for a dive, waiting for it to happen. And it's just tough to predict the year that it's finally going to happen if the year before was so elite, which it was last year. But again, like you said, going to the 33 year, he's a speed guy, he's a defense guy, he's a center fielder, like that stuff, you know, this, the tools you need to play that position just naturally regress as you get older. That's just, you know, that's science. That's kind of, that's how aging works. So I don't think Lorenzo Cain's going to fall off a cliff. But you just, I guess, got to keep expecting him to regress a little bit when, when he gets older and older. I think that's that's fair. That's not a knock on Lorenzo Cain. It's just it's his age. So um, I, don't, I don't see a cliff in his future. 
but I guess we'll see. I mean, well, when his speed declines, that's kind of it for him, I think, when he's when he loses his legs. So whenever that happens, um, you know, he's going to obviously regress a lot as a baseball player and as uh, his value. So I guess we'll have to see how long he can keep his legs. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the concerning thing about Lorenzo Cain is if he loses that elite speed, uh, I don't know how much he has to fall back on. Um, like I said, his bat still plays very well, but it's not – it's sort of like your prototypical Royals bat rather than the rest of the MLB's bat. I mean, his isolated power last year was 109, which is the worst it's been in his career since 2013, um, and that is a very, very underwhelming figure. Uh, he only had 37 extra bases last – extra base hits last year out of his 166 hits. Um He's really sort of turned into like this death by singles guy. I mean, his OBP was 395, which is elite, but his slugging was 417. Pretty pedestrian number there. Um, so he, yeah, he'll he'll get on base and he'll disrupt you with his speed. And he's got those 24 defensive runs saved that won him a, another gold glove last year, I believe. Um, yeah, just elite defense. But once those legs go, um, and you'll never that that kind of stuff just happens with a snap of your fingers. Um, so. We could we. I'm not gonna say Lorenzo Cain is gonna decline next year, but if it does happen, I think it'll happen really fast. I think he'll go from a seven-one player to a two-one player like really fast. Um, so that's always scary. Then you got uh, the new addition, Yasmani Grandal, behind the plate. Uh, I really like this move. They got him on a one-year deal somehow. He rejected a four-year, seventy million dollar offer from the Mets, and then took one year, eighteen, to sign with the Brewers, just above the qualifying offer rate that he would have gotten anyway from the Dodgers. Um, but I think in Milwaukee, as a good fit. Um, obviously provides – I mean, yes, Monty Grandal, I think, is one of the most – one of the more underrated players in baseball. What do you provide on both sides of, of the diamond, um, especially in the catcher position, is so rare and so valuable that – I mean, he can hit, I think, straight up better than any other catcher. I mean – Gary Sanchez, if he's having one of his years, is obviously the best. And JT Romuto probably is up in the conversation. But I think just pure hitting, I think Yasmani Grandal on a consistency basis would take it. Um, and then he's probably the best pitch framer in baseball. Um, and he has a cannon of an arm and really just does everything you want out of your catcher. So to, for the Brewers to get him on a one-year deal with you know no risk, all upside, you're just you're getting an extremely valuable player that they haven't seen since Jonathan Lucroy left them. Um, and it really lengthens out that lineup. And they were rolling out Manny Pena and Eric Kratz. Thirty-eight-year-old Eric Kratz was getting legitimate playoff at bats. I mean, that was definitely a hole for the Brewers, and I think they filled it with one of the game's best. So I really like that addition. Um, yeah. Yeah, you kind of said all all you said about Grandal. He's a great catcher, and you know catchers come at a premium in this league. So um, to get a guy that, like you said, is good at both sides of the plays, switch hitter, one twenty OPS plus last year. He's he's just a really, really, really good catcher, one of the best in the game. And like you said, no risk deal, one year, and it fills a hole for him. So um, that's a huge boost to their to their lineup and to their defense. How much of a boost it makes overall, and can he balance out some of the aggression from other guys? We'll have to wait and see. Uh, they're definitely an interesting team to 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 see, and we'll have to wait wait and see how it goes. But uh, moving on, the NL Central, talk about the Chicago Cubs coming up next. Um, probably the odds-on favorite, I would say, at the beginning of the year to win to win the division. 
Um, definitely the the most talented core, I would say, in terms of you know top three or four guys they're rolling out there. But um, yeah, another another interesting, another really good team in a really tough division. So uh, what do you think of the Chicago Cubs? Do you think they win it this year? Um, think they either battle again, or, or what do you think about them? So just for some context, Zips had projected the Chicago Cubs to win 87 games next year, which would win the Central by their prediction. 87 games. No other uh, Zips projected division has a sub-90 win team winning the division except for this one. Yeah, I think I think just going off that, I think you know, Central's going to be the toughest division in baseball next year. Um, better than AL East, better than the West, NL West, whatever, however you want to slice it, I think the NL Central will be the toughest division in baseball next year. And those Zips projections kind of go along with that with that thinking just because they do have to battle against each other. And I don't think there's going to be easy games in NL Central next year. So um, Cubs have it out for have their work cut out for them in terms of if they want to kind of get back to the top of the Central after the Brewers took it from them last year. Uh, yeah, so Chicago Cubs, a team that really hasn't done anything this offseason. I mean, I'm talking like literally nothing. Um, yeah, I mean, Theo's been talking all offseason about them being strapped for cash, which, you know, kind of makes sense given, you know, Lester and they took on Cole Hamill's contract and they're paying you Darvish all that money and Ben Zobrist and we can go on and on, Jason Hayward. Uh, they got a lot of money on the books, that team. They're kind of bloated in that way. I don't know what they're going to do when it's time for Chris Bryant and Javi Baez to get paid, but um, that's for a couple of years down the road anyway. Um, but yeah, this team, I think the 87 win point makes sense to me, given this top to bottom relative strength of the NL Central. Um, yeah, this set, this division is going to be a dogfight for the whole year. Um, and the Cubs don't strike me as a team that's like quite good enough to emerge from that pack like substantially. Um, and I would cite... Kind of the, I mean, I think I'd say their starting rotation and the, I'd say the pitching staff as a whole because the bullpen's not that strong either. Um, as kind of like good, not great, and I think the rest of the team is pretty great. But I think in order to separate yourself from this NL Central, I think you need to be a really great all-around team. Which I don't know if the Cubs are as much as they have been. Um, they just got a lot of aging guys in that rotation, namely John Lester and Cole Hamels. And I mean, you could throw you Darvish in there for sure too because he. Couldn't stay healthy to save his life last year. And when he was, he was ineffective. I think John Lester had an incredibly fluky last season. I think you saw it after the All-Star break. I, did he start the All-Star game? Yeah. He did? Uh, yeah, I mean, he had, he had an ERA, I think, hovering around, like, a little bit over two going to the All-Star break with really crap, like, not good peripherals. It was very clear that he was getting lucky, and then he got started getting shelled in the second half and that kind of balanced out his year but even so on the whole it was probably better than it should have been so I think to call John Lester a one in the rotation is disingenuous I think he's more of like a three at this point of his career maybe even a four and the problem I think with the Cubs is that I can't put I can't name any guy in the rotation that's a one I think they're a rotation of threes I think they have five threes John Lester Kyle Hendricks Cole Hamels Jose Quintana Yu Darvish I mean, those are names that have been flashy in the past, but I think it's 2019 now, and some of them have to start facing reality that their best days are behind them. I think I, if you're like John, John Lester and Cole Hamels are clearly on a downtrend, and I don't know. I don't see many. The pro, I think the problem with the Chicago Cubs is that I don't see many guys in this entire roster that are on the uptrend. I think a lot of them are either plateauing or going down, with the exception of Javi Baez. 
I mean, well, I don't know. Do you see something different here? Or? Yeah, I think um, two key players for them in terms of having bounce back years are going to be one you mentioned, you Darvish. He needs to stay healthy. And two, Chris Bryant. He struggled last year. Um, and I think that those guys need to rebound in order for the Cubs to be competitive in this dogfight of a division. They need Darvish to be healthy and pitch to his capabilities, and they need Bryant to play like one of the best third basemen in the game again. So, um, I mean, that's not, Chris Bryant's only 26. So that's, he's certainly capable of you know putting up another five-win season. He only had a two-win season last year, so I think those guys need to rebound. Um, you know, I don't know to what extent they're going to, but for me, those are the two guys, two key guys for the Chicago Cubs. Uh, and I agree with you, your, your assessment on the pitching staff. I mean, Lester and, and uh, Hamels, they're clearly declining. Uh, another kind of age thing, no knock against them, just kind of how it goes. Um, Kyle Hendricks, I like Kyle Hendricks as a pitcher. He's not an ace, he's not a two, and he's a three, I think. And Jose Katana, good stuff. Again, three, two on a on a good day. And so that kind of comes down to Hugh Darvish. Can he kind of take control of that, that ace spot? I think he has the stuff to do it. He just needs to stay on the field. and kind of needs to pitch to his, his capabilities. Um, very excited to see what Javi Baez does after last year. Uh, kind of see how he follows up on that. Um, but, yeah, like you said, it's a lot of question marks on this Cubs team. Uh, they're going to need to put it all together, and they're going to be fighting for 162 games in that division. And with their roster, with their older guys, it's going to be a tough ask for them. But um, I think they could definitely do it if the guys, like I mentioned, and other guys kind of step up and, you know, prove people wrong and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, Cubs will be, will be an interesting watch for sure. I just want to give a couple of shout-outs to some Cubs players that have some pretty interesting seasons, at the very least, because I know we've been kind of negative about them. Um, besides the obvious hobby bias, uh, Kyle Schwarber. Um, I've always been a big fan of Kyle Schwarber, um, especially when he started to slim down. I got very excited. Um, he lost a ton of weight before last year, coming into last year's spring training. Looked like a completely different player. He'd always been this sort of... Uh, stocky, very slow, hulking outfielder that played pretty horrible defense in left field. And I think he was trying to aim to become a more well-rounded player, not just completely rely on the home run or bust, um, which I think he did to an extent. And I think the extent that he did it isn't the one you'd expect him to do it. Because his offense remained pretty much the same, more or less. I mean, he's still the low-average, high-strikeout, high-power guy that he's always been. Um... So yeah, he didn't turn into some like singles and doubles machine or anything like the the bat on ball Kyle Schwarber that was in 2017 remained in 2018. But what he did do was turn himself into actually a really good defensive left fielder, which I don't know anyone would have projected Kyle Schwarber to do in his career. Um, I mean, he came into the league as a catcher, a big catcher, and <laughs> now he's a, a slim down left fielder who posted a 9.8 UZR last year which is elite. That's an elite number. Uh, obviously, UZR is not a perfect stat. No defensive metric is. Um, but if you're ranking up there in any defensive metric, I'd say you're probably doing a pretty good job. And for Kyle Schwarber, of all people, to be doing that is crazy. And on the base pass, he was a he was an above-average base runner. Like, good, good for you, Kyle. 
I give you the thumbs up. And also uh, Cole Hamels is the other guy I've just been ragging on him. But um, in 2017, he saw his strikeout rate dip from the around nine that he's always hovered with the Phillies in his first year with the Rangers um, to 6.4. He looks like he, he looks like he completely lost his stuff. Um, he was just relying on soft contact to get hitters out. He looks like you know his his strikeout days were clearly behind him. And in 2018, he bumped it right back up to 8.9, where it had always been. I think with strikeouts, that's usually because that usually correlates so strongly with your stuff. I think when you're, you see your strikeouts start to dip, I think that's pretty damning evidence that you're declining as a pitcher. And for Cole Hamels to bump it right back up to its career norm on a strikeout level is, I thought, was pretty impressive. Uh, so good for you, Cole. Um, but yeah, overall, I think I don't know where you'd peg the Cubs. I think. Um, 87 to 91 wins. I see them somewhere in that window. Uh, how about you? What do you think? Just to sum it up. Yeah, I think they're, they're right around the top of that division. They're going to be in a battle, I think, for me with, with two other teams to kind of win that division. But, um, yeah, 87, 91 wins. They're going to be a good baseball team. And going to have to see kind of how they do against the rest of their division. And it's going to be very interesting to see. But uh, moving on, move on to the Cincinnati Reds, uh, a very, very interesting team, have made a lot of moves this offseason, and kind of are positioning themselves maybe to be a little surprise in the in the NL Central. Um, for me, I don't think they're there yet, because there are three really good teams, I think, in that Central. But they're an interesting case for sure, and it wouldn't surprise me if they're kind of hanging around come August. So uh, what, do you, what do you got for the Cincinnati Reds for me? I mean, this team's going to be a lot of fun just from the fact there's so many new faces here. Uh, just to recap some of their moves. They swung a big deal with the Dodgers to get Alex Wood, Yasiel Puig, and Matt Kemp over. Those are three legitimate Major League Baseball players to add to their roster. Uh, and then they went out and swung a deal with the Yankees to get Sonny Gray. Um, to add to their rotation, so that um, and they weren't done there because they went out and added Tanner Roark as well. So now you got Roark, Wood, and Gray added to your rotation. That was probably the worst. Ro- I mean, there's no way the numbers don't back this up. The Reds had the worst rotation in baseball and the worst pitching staff in baseball, front to back. Um, yeah, every game they were throwing out a guy who didn't belong in the major leagues, and it was obvious to everyone. Uh, they were quite literally just an embarrassment of a team last year. Uh, they won 67 games to back up that claim and allowed 819 runs, which is the worst in the National League. So there you go. Uh, their pitching sucked. And for them to go out and get three legitimate Major League starters, I think it's a really encouraging sign for them. Um, then again, we have to remember that they're starting at a place of 67 wins. And so you need to add a whole lot to get back in that picture. And I commend them for at least doing their best here. Um, and they're not done. They've been connected to JT Realmuto vaguely in some rumors, and I'm sure they're going to stay aggressive. I and mean, when you've made this many moves, you might as well just go balls to the walls a little bit. Um, one guy I would have really liked to see them get was AJ Pollock, actually, because they, just looking at their depth chart, they have a huge hole in center field. Um, Scott Shebler and Philip Irvin. Uh, Scott Shebler can hit, he can't play defense, especially not in center, and Philip Irvin, the exact opposite. Um, yeah, I mean, they lost Billy Hamilton uh, to the Royals, which I don't think is really a loss in any way. Uh, Billy Hamilton's not a good baseball player. Um, but still, you got to have someone playing center field. And 
the flank of Kemp and Puig, or actually probably more accurately, Jesse Winker and Puig with Kemp off the bench is a really solid pinch hitting option against a lefty reliever. Um, I like that a lot. Obviously, Joey Votto, the stalwart at first, Scooter Jeanette at second, Eugenio Suarez third. That makes for a very solid infield, even when Jose Peraza is pretty so-so. Um, still a very plus infield. Um, and then the bullpen, which I think is very interesting. Rysel Iglesias at closer. He's been awesome for years now. Um, Amir Garrett broke onto the scene last year. Lefty, love him. He's, he's just an elite lefty reliever. Jared Hughes, another breakout guy from the right-hand side, um, makes for another great trio. But I think Michael Lorenzen is a really interesting guy to talk about um, because this guy is a reliever who low-key mashes. Uh, he, I'm, he had a .8 war last year offensively. Uh, in 31 at-bats, he hit four homers with an OPS over 1,000. Um, and now there's chatter in the off, uh, this offseason about the Reds maybe giving him some outfield luck next year and turning him into a little bit of a two-way player. Um, I don't know. What do you th- what are you thinking of that? I think it's so cool, and I would love to see it happen. Um, you don't see this kind of stuff a lot, and when you do see it, it's something you kind of want to hold on to. Um, you know, pitcher's raking is always a magical, magical, magical scene. So, I don't think they're going to give him looks in the outfield. I think that would be, um, that would surprise me. But the chatter at least gets me excited. Um, it's something fun to talk about. And this guy, I mean, it's just, it's very impressive what he's doing. He's very talented. It's very exciting. Do I actually think he can be a serviceable major league outfielder? Probably not. But you never know. So, you know, if they want to stick him in the outfield, you know, in a in a midsummer game, you know, mid mid Friday game when uh, kind of legs are legs are flailing. I don't know, we'll see. But uh, very interesting, very talented guy, very interesting baseball player to talk about, and definitely kind of adds some spice to the league and to that roster. Yeah, I think it adds a little bit of strategy too, because I mean, you saw last year relievers don't get thirty one at bats. Like that's a purposeful move uh, by the Reds and. You know, when he comes in out of the bullpen and it just so happens that the bottom of the order is coming up, you don't have to take him out of the game. He can he can hit for himself. He went 9 for 31 with four homers. 44% of his hits went over the fence. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's an exciting dude. Uh, I want to see the two-way player maybe catch a little bit of trend. I mean, Shohei Otani sort of started this movement. And now you're seeing, you know, it's been talked about, uh, what was it, Caleb, Caleb Cowart, um, Teams are trying him out as a two-way player after he was an infield prospect who could never really find his, his bat in the majors, but he could throw like 94. So teams are giving him a look. Obviously, the Rays prospect, uh, Brandon McKay, that they picked like fourth overall, I think, in 2016 or 17. He's one of their top prospects. He's a two-way player as a first base and a left-handed pitcher. Um, you just sort of started, started seeing this trend a little bit. I think it's, it's a lot of fun to see guys go on both sides of the diamond in the hardest way which i mean when you think about it like how how talented you have to be to do that at the highest level is just crazy to me um yeah i I hope the trend catches on but i hope it doesn't get out of hand where teams are like doing it for the hell of it when guys clearly can't take it i but i don't think we're anywhere anywhere near that level of it being like a, a gimmick or anything i think guys teams are literally just trying to salvage as much value out of one roster spot as they can, which I think is a smart move. 
if guys can handle it. Yeah, I think um, it is a very smart move. And, and the Reds had one of those guys. They drafted him, uh, Hunter Green. But he is now exclusively a pitcher in the minor league. So um, we'll be seeing that you know as he's coming up. But again, it's one of those things where if it does catch on, now, you know, two years, Roger Greens, let's say he's in the like, majors in two or three years, perhaps, if that's a trend that is catching on, now you, maybe you stick a bat back in Hunter Green's hands and kind of say, hey, what you, what you still got. So, um, yeah, something to keep an eye on, definitely an interesting trend. And like you said, I hope it doesn't get out of hand because I think that is something that can could get out of hand with just, you know, teams playing copycat and it kind of not working for a lot of guys because I think that's something that can go very wrong very quickly. If you're if you're trying to force it with the wrong players, so I guess we'll have to see how he does. I would love to see him get some get some reps. Uh, I think it w- it would it would surprise me a little bit if it does actually happen. But like you said, just being a, a pinch hitter if they're out of guys or being able to keep them in the game or anything like that, it definitely does add some strategy to their to their team. So I have to keep an eye on Michael Lorenzen this year. See what he could do. See if he can keep it up from last year. What do you think of the Reds? Final thoughts. Um, did they improve enough to get over the hump or what? I I don't think so. I guess we can have right where we do the complete central wrap about the end of this. Yeah. But I think they finish fourth in that division. I think they do make a leap, but I don't think they're they're there yet to where they're confidently challenging for the division. I think they might they'll stick around for a little bit. I would say kind of hovering around the top, but I don't think they have the firepower yet to be able to keep up with. You know, for me, the Brewers, Cardinals, and Cubs at the top of that division. But definitely a cool team. Very fun team. All right, well, let's get into that last team of the tree you just mentioned that we haven't yet discussed. The St. Louis Cardinals, who I think kind of sneakily won 88 games last year. I think because for most of the season, I mean, they fired Mike Matheny halfway through the year when they were 500. And they were kind of middling around that 500 level, and then they caught some fire, and then they caught a ton of just a major cold streak and faded away hard at the end of the year and lost that potential second wildcard spot that they definitely could have gotten. Uh, but still, 88-74, and 74, maybe not for the Cardinals, but a solid season for almost any other team uh, in, a, in a given year just by missing the playoffs. And they've got some youth on that team. So um, what are some of the names that are standing out? Um, well, I guess I might as well just state the obvious. They traded for Paul Goldschmidt this offseason, which I think – it's that's absolutely ridiculous to say, but I think that move has somehow fell under the radar. That with all this talk about Manny Machado and Bryce Harper, um, that the St. Louis Cardinals acquiring a legitimate, undisputed top ten position player in baseball um, has just been like completely swept under the rug. Like Paul Goldschmidt is as good as they get. At it doesn't matter if he's playing for, like first base. Like he's just as good a baseball player as it comes. He's probably better than Bryce Harper, and he's probably like better or on Machado's level. And still, those guys hog the storylines, and Paul Goldschmidt sort of hasn't gotten it to do here. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, that addition and just everything else. What do you what do you see from the Cardinals? I actually I really like the Cardinals roster. Um, I think they have you know some really good pieces. I mean, we mentioned Goldschmidt first. I really like Paul DeJong at short. Um, Matt Carpenter at third. Their outfield's pretty good. I mean, I know you're you're a huge fan of Harrison Bader in center field. He's a phenomenal player. Uh, Marcelo Zuna, Dexter Fowler. They have a solid, solid roster. 
and one that definitely can kind of compete, I think, with the best of the best in the league. So, you know, looking at it here right now, there's no reason why they shouldn't be, you know, setting their sights for that NL Central crown. Uh, with the talent they have, the roster they have, they can easily do it. If they, like you said, if they don't fall off a cliff in the middle of the year, they would have been a playoff team last year. So I think, you know, with a couple, they have a couple additions. They have the huge addition of Paul Goldschmidt. Uh, there's no reason why the Cardinals shouldn't be challenging for not only the division, but I would say the NL pennant. I think they have a chance at it. Kind of depends on all the pieces fall into place. But um, big fan of their roster, big fan of what they're doing. So just have to wait and see. Kind of upset you took a positive stance, this positive stance in the Cardinals, because now I feel like I still have to one-up you. Um, I'm in love with the St. Louis Cardinals <laughs> roster. It is, it's amazing. Um, yeah, so they won 88 games last year. They add Paul Goldschmidt. Their young guys get a year older. This team's going to be so good. Um, I don't know if I just said uh, before that the Cubs will win the Central. I hope I didn't, because they won't. Um, you guys, the Cardinals will. Um, I, I don't even know where to start. Uh, so, like, okay, infield. Paul Goldschmidt, like I said. Colton Wong, best defensive second baseman in baseball. Uh, sorry, Bias. It's Colton Wong. Um, Matt Carpenter, the most con- probably the most consistent player in baseball. Even And last year, he just, like, did his normal thing, except just like, added a ton of power that we'd never seen from him. Um, but he's as much of a lock for, like, a 380-plus OBP as they come, even if he's not hitting the ball over the fence. Uh, Paul DeYoung provides good power at a shortstop. A little questionable on defense. I think he's more of a natural second baseman. Um, but he's serviceable enough there that it's not it's not a problem. Um, outfield, uh, Marcelo Zuna in left. I think um, definitely underperformed statistically last year. But I think um, the, the underlying numbers would suggest that he'll do better. Um, his Woba last year was 327. His expected Woba based on his uh, batted ball profile and how hard he hit the ball was 354, which is a 27-point difference, which would make him one of the most unlucky players in baseball. Um, and just given his track record, I mean, the year before, he hit something like, what, 36, 38 homers with Miami, and that's in Miami as a right-handed hitter. That's not easy to do. Um, so I think Marcelo Zuna has the talent to make a huge bounce-back year, which would be very big for the Cardinals' offense if he can do that. Um, Harrison Bader in the center, as you alluded to, I love him. Uh, he's incredible. He could hit zero and still be a solid Major League Baseball player just with his defense alone. He broke onto the scene last year's rookie year and lit the world on fire in center. He's got sick flow. He's got swag for days. He, you know, he steals bases. He robs hits. Uh, and he can, his bat, uh, scouts, that's the part of the, his game that scouts have questioned uh, the most. And I'd say he held his own with, with the stick last year. And if he can just do that, if he can just be a league average hitter with his defense, he'll be a perennial all-star. Um, Harrison Bader, I mean, he's been top prospect in the Cardinals system since he got drafted for good reason. But now he's up. He's here to stay. Uh, and he'll be manning that center field for a long, long time, I think, in St. Louis. Uh, he's just so exciting to watch. Um, and then in right field, Dexter Fowler, another very interesting case. He got a big contract with, with St. Louis after uh, spurning the rival Cubs for them. Uh, which led to a lot of hate on his part. Um, and to say he underperformed last year would be the understatement of the year. Um, he was simply dreadful. Um, fans were clamoring for him to start getting benched. He fought with Mike Matheny, the manager, and probably played a decent hand in him getting fired. Um, 
and all that from a negative 1.2 war player who hit 180. 180! <laughs> with a 278 OBP and a 298 slugging. He couldn't even slug 300. Um, 62 weighted runs created plus. So, I mean, he was just so bad. Like, in every, his defense sucked. Um, he was he was just, like, one of the worst players in baseball. But you look at Dexter Fowler, and from 2011 on, he's never been less than a two-win player in his career in, in that span. Um, he, he always seemed to find find a way to put up a above-average line with at least slightly below-average defense to the point where it didn't kill his value. But last year, he just couldn't hit a lick. And then we hear this offseason that he had been battling depression last season, um, which obviously... It's not something you like expect from someone or can anticipate in any way, but um, I think it's safe to say that if that is true, that must have taken a big chunk out of his game and his performance. Um, and he says that he's working to to get over that, and that he's he's sort of gotten over that hump a little bit. Um, and you would expect that to to improve his play at that level. Um, obviously, not something that would ever show up on a on a spreadsheet or anything, but. Um, a big factor nonetheless. So I think from the corners, you could see some huge bounce backs for the Cardinals outfield. And with Bader in the center, that's just their offense through through. And I even mentioned Yadier Molina behind the plate. Just even if he does nothing on hitting or defense, just the way he works, the pitchers and how he, they just completely trust him 100%. Um, you can't really put a value on that. Um but yeah, I feel like I've been talking forever and I haven't even talked about the pitchers. So you want to say something about the pitchers so I can then also jump in about the pitchers. All right, so moving on to the Cardinals rotation. Um, I don't – I'm not super excited about this rotation. It's not, you know, by any means bad. I wouldn't call it elite. They definitely got two really good pieces at the top there. I'm just kind of curious to see how they do this year. I don't I don't know. I'm, I, I'm a little – Weary of the of the Cardinals rotation. Weary. So uh, Miles McCullers last year, fucking unbelievable year. I mean, just really, really good. Yep. But I just I don't know. It's just something about him. I don't. He's not going to repeat last year. I don't think. Um, you know, one hundred seven WHIP over two hundred innings. That's not really heard of a lot. Uh, you don't see that every day. You don't see that all, especially from Miles McCullis. I think it's a six and a half strikeouts per nine that gets me a little, a little uneasy about him. Yeah, it's just it's one of those guys you don't expect that to happen. So when it does happen, it's kind of huh. Wonder if he can keep this up. But um, the rest of kind of the rotation: Carlos Martinez, Jack Flaherty, Michael Waka, Adam Wainwright. All just solid pieces. I don't really see a weak link in that rotation. Um, Carlos Martinez, I think for me, is their best pitcher in my mind. I know, you know, Miles had that year last year, but just from a talent stuff perspective, I think Carlos Martinez is their guy. I expect uh, McCullough to kind of regress a little bit, but um, you know, the rest of the rotation, it, it's fine for me. It's it does the trick. I don't think it's their strong suit, but. I think it gets the job done, and it certainly has you know enough upside to where it can become a strength for this team. So, uh, what do you think? Yeah, um, I mean, I can't find a weakness with the Cardinals. If I was to really look, it might be here, even though it's really not here. Um, so, like, like Miles McCullis, like you said, awesome year, 
Six and a half strikeouts per nine makes me a little uneasy about his ability to repeat that, and also his ERA estimators um, don't like love it. I mean, they thought he was a solid pitcher. He had a two eight three ERA. His fit was three two eight, which is still great. His X fit was three six seven, a little less great than that, um, but still the way he can induce soft contact with his sinker. Um, I mean, yeah, single, that's single row pitch, pitchers, that's what they do. They don't really necessarily need to rely on the strikeout. Um, it makes them a little riskier of a bet to rely on contact rather than just missing bats. Um, but I think if all goes well for the Cardinals pitching staff, they won't rely on Miles Mikolas to be their ace anyway. Is that how you say it, by the way? Mikolas? Yeah, I think it's Mikolas. Being positive? No. Okay. So that's where I was going to say it. All right. I'm going to say Mikolas. All right. So we got a little duality there. <laughs> Miles Mikolas. Um, but yeah, I don't think if if everything goes well across their five that he's going to be the number one anyway. Do you know who I think could be the number one? A guy who I really love, Jack Flaherty. Um, you kind of mentioned him pretty briefly. He's 23 years old, and he just threw a 3-3-4 ERA season with 10.8 strikeouts per nine and three and a half walks per nine. This guy's stuff is elite. Is He's so young for how good he is. Um, he might just keep getting better, even if he doesn't. It doesn't matter. He's already super good. Um, he could easily emerge as the Cardinals' number one next year. Uh, he's in just a really, really great piece for them to build around the rotation. Um, so, yeah, I love him. And then Carlos Martinez, like you mentioned, probably their on-paper best pitcher, even though, weirdly, they started throwing him out of the bullpen last year, and he collected five saves and 15 appearances out of his 33 games prior to the bullpen. Don't know why, um, because he was pretty effective as a starter. He had a 311 ERA um, on the year. Um, his walks were up, which is a little concerning. To a, I mean, they were at a concerning level, which maybe spurned the move, but I don't get why that would anyway. Um, just a weird Cardinals move. Um, but, yeah, he's only 26 years old, and his stuff is elite. So, I mean, with him, Nicholas, and Flaherty as your top three, there's not really a way where this rotation is going to be bad, I think. Walker is your four. Uh, don't love it. He's probably – he Walker and Wainwright, your four or five, that's clearly the weak link in the rotation for me. Um, I think Walker had a ridiculously fluky year last year. His numbers were way better than they should have been. Um, he was letting up hard contact all over the place. He wasn't striking out that many guys to – where that if those balls were falling as they should have, he his ERA probably should have been like four and a half instead of like the mid threes, middle of threes that it was. Uh, and Adam Wainwright, I think, is just completely over the hill. I don't think he's really got anything left. He can't miss bats. He hangs curveballs. He's sinkers. Nah, his stuff's just not good anymore. He's lost so much velocity. Um, this yeah, this might be like the last we see of Adam Wainwright because I don't see him really holding down a rotation spot for a full season. Um, so, yeah, that back in the rotations where I would say is the Cardinals' biggest weakness. Because moving on to the bullpen, I think they have the nastiest righty-lefty duo that I've ever seen in my life in baseball history. <laughs> uh, that might be a little hyperbolic, but if you've ever seen Jordan Hicks pitch, you know what I'm talking about. He's throwing 102-mile-an-hour two-seamers with so much bite and velocity, like how any hitter could hit it, either one make contact or two make contact without splintering their bat into a thousand pieces. Uh, I simply don't understand how it's possible. And mix in a wipeout slider, like, I 
You could give me a billion at-bats against Jordan Hicks, and I would not touch the ball once. I wouldn't see the ball once either. And then Andrew Miller, who they just brought in, uh, obviously the left, the sidearm lefty with just unhittable stuff to an opposing lefty. With I mean, The slider breaks four feet. Uh, his fastball still pumping at, you know, maybe not the 98 velo that he was he was humming up there with the Orioles, Red Sox, and Yankees, but uh, and Indians, but he still sits around the 94 to 96 range, which is good enough to play off his slider in an effective way. So even though he's coming off a bit of a down year by his standards, I, I just don't see a way where if the Cardinals use him effectively um, and don't sort of overuse him like Terry Francona was and trying to stretch him out to multiple innings and not using him mostly against lefties and all that good stuff, I think he'll be extremely effective. And pairing him up with Jordan Hicks is just like the grossest thing I could possibly imagine. Yeah, um, those two guys can, can carry a bullpen. And um, obviously, I, I the, your hyperbolic statement, um, yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. But again, they're they're both nasty and definitely you know can anchor down that bullpen. Kind of whoever comes through it can uh, you know you can rest assured those two guys will be back there. So uh, for me, the Cardinals again, I think they're right at the top of that division. Uh, I really like their roster. I don't think I like it as much as you do, but I think. You know they're they're going to be competing for it, and for me, it's those three teams: it's the Cubs, Brewers, and Cardinals. Going to be fighting for the top of that Central, and you know that's that's where I'm at with them. It's going to be a dogfight all year. We've said it. It's going to be one of the toughest, if not the toughest, division in baseball. Uh, but yeah, moving on to the last team in this NL Central, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, kind of for me, the you know the least interesting team I would say in this division. Um, you know, they don't got much, much going on there. Uh, I don't think they're going to be that good. I think they're going to finish last in their division. Uh, they got a, re- they got a pretty good pitching staff, but for me, that's kind of about it. I would say for them, uh, you know, what do you, what do you think about the Pirates? I think they're kind of going to be in the basement of that central. I mean, not basement. I think they're going to be still a little competitive, not going to be a 62 win team, but I don't really see them making any, any powerful pushes. Yeah, I mean, I think the Pirates are interesting because you look at their roster and it's pretty solid. I mean, they don't have a ton of glaring weaknesses, um, but just given the overall strength of the Central, I mean, as we've gone through these teams, we have not once said, like, this team is trash, like, this team can't compete. Um, I think all these teams can, like, have the potential at least for a 500 season, uh, if not better. And, yeah, I mean, the Pirates... I think their pitching is, is going to be their strength. It's going to carry them a little bit. They added Chris Archer um, at the deadline last year, which was a very interesting move that I was skeptical of and still am uh, to an extent. But um, they add, he's at least there. Uh, Chris Archer, you got Jameson Tyone, who put together a fantastic breakout, kind of breakout season last year. Um, yeah, in the low threes, just becoming a really, at least a solid two in a rotation. Um, Trevor Williams had a really solid year, kind of a breakout in his own right. Uh, I really like Joe Musgrove's stuff. Um, I think once he puts together a full, healthy season as a starter, and he's been reused as mostly as a reliever throughout his young career, but I really like Joe Musgrove's stuff. Uh, Nick Kingham, I'm not high on. Um, he started off hot with his first couple of starts in his MLB debut last year, and then started to get shelled because his stuff is pretty meh. Um, but those those four, I think, could make a, like a very solid four with not a lot of weakness there. Um, yeah, their bullpen, uh, Felipe Vasquez as closer is as good as they get. Lefty makes him a little, a little better. 
And then you got Kyle Crick, the Giants' former top prospect who just blossomed as a reliever in Pittsburgh. And now Keon Kayla. Um, Richard Rodriguez was lights out last year as a lefty. That was, I mean, I'd never heard of him before. And then he just started striking everyone out. And I think he did like a near one ERA, something crazy like that. Um, yeah, I think really solid pitching staff. Um, I, I think an interesting thing is Chris Archer, though. I feel like he's talked about as an ace and like as a top of the shelf pitcher, but he hasn't really been anywhere near that level since 2015. Uh, he hasn't had a sub 4 ERA since 2015. His ERA plus has been in those seasons uh, 100, 103, and 94. Uh, and 100, of course, is league average, and you want to be as far above 100 as possible. So 100, 103, and 94, that averages out to pretty much just a league average pitcher that Chris Archer's been. Um, what do you? Th- he's kind of a weird case. What do you think of him? Yeah, and I think the biggest thing is this: the perception of him. And for some reason, even though it kind of has been a while, like you said, since he's been a really good pitcher, people still talk about him like he's this, you know, game-saving guy for the, for the Pirates. I just don't think he's that type of guy. Um, I think he's a solid piece. I think he's a solid middle-of-the-rotation guy. But again, I don't think he's going to grab a hold of that one spot and and run with it. Like you said, his last good season was in 2015. Uh, he's going into his age 30 season. I think we also kind of always kind of think of Chris Archer as this younger, you know, flashy, charismatic guy. He's, he's 30 years old now. Um, he's not he's not the guy he used to be. Do I think he still can be effective with the Pirates? Of course, I definitely do. But I think to expect him to, to take hold of that number one spot and, and run away with it, I think that's naive and not a great thought to be having if you're the Pittsburgh Pirates. I think he's going to let you down in that sense. But if you expect him to kind of be that middle of the rotation guy, a solid piece in your rotation, you know, kind of improve it, because I think it does improve it, even though he isn't the elite guy he used to be. I think if you set your expectations there, he'll, uh, he'll kind of meet them. So, you know, I'm not, not a uh, Chris Archer hater by any means, but I just think that the expectations for him might be a little too high in terms of what he actually brings to the Pirates. Yeah, I think he's especially a weird case because if you look at his numbers outside of ERA, they really don't change that much from when he was really good to when he was pretty so-so. I mean, comparing his 2015 year, we need 3-2-3 RA to his, say, 2017 year, we need a 4-0-7 ERA. Um, strikeouts, 10.7 to 11.1. All right, that's like the same. Walks, 2.8 to 2.7. That's about the same. Homers per nine, 0.8 to 1.2. All right, there you see a little bit of a difference, but not enough that you would think his ERA goes up 0.8. Um, his whip was 0.1 higher. Um I don't. I can't really pinpoint one reason why he started going bad. I mean, he's he's one of the most elite strikeout pitchers in baseball, which is a product of him throwing sliders over half the time. But um, I mean, it works to an extent. I can't really say what's wrong. I will say that his FIP has been lower than his ERA for the past three seasons. So maybe there's some bad luck involved here. But I feel like it's just been going on so long now that like, is this just Chris Archer? Is this bad luck? I don't. I don't know what to expect from him. Um, but yeah, that's, that's enough on Chris Archer. Uh, yeah, the rest of the Pirates' offense is very so-so. Um, would be better if Josh Bell could learn how to hit a home run again. He had five last year. <laughs> Pretty pathetic from your first baseman. Uh, one thing I want to call out, Corey Dickerson in left field. 
uh, suddenly learned how to play defense. That's cool. Um, he had negative uh, 24 career defensive runs saved going in last year and finished last season with a plus 16 defensive run save and took home a Gold Glove Award winner. So they called him a DH only, and then he moved to Pittsburgh, became an outfielder, and became really damn good at it. So good for Corey. Uh, any other closing thoughts on the Pirates? Yeah, you kind of mentioned it real quick. I'm just a really big fan of their outfield. Um, Corey Dickerson in left, Starling Marte in center, and Gregory Polanco in right. I think that's a really solid outfield. And with Corey Dickerson's newfound ability to play the position, uh, I think it kind of is a good defensive outfield. They'll, they'll hit pretty well. So I think that's another strong suit of their team is is their outfield. So exciting outfield. I like Dickerson as a player. But, yeah, I kind of want to you know finish on that with I'm, I am a fan of their outfield. Um, but, again, the Pirates just don't have – they're solid. Like you said, there's no real, like, huge weaknesses, but there's also not really any guy – like, any spots or any players or any, you know, core group of guys that really jump off the page at you that these guys are going to drag them to a – you know, to compete for this division. So um, by no means a horrible team. Like we said, there's no bad teams really in the NL Central. But again, by no means do I think they're going to be really challenging for for the Central title. So, uh, yeah, that kind of wraps up our NL Central talk. Um, Let's just run it down quickly. Uh, what's what's your NL Central 2019 standings projections? Project. Uh, I'm going to go Cardinals take it, but I'm going to say the Cubs are hot on their ass. Um, I think the Cardinals squeak it out by a game or two. So I'm going to go Cardinals, Cubs, Brewers. Reds and, and Pirates are interesting. I'm going to go Pirates, Reds. Um, but I think that's also going to be close in terms of who kind of finished in the basement. But yeah, um, really competitive division. going to be dogged all year. There's not going to be easy games when, you know, when the Cardinals go to Pittsburgh. That's not an easy series for either team, obviously. So I think that's it's going to be interesting to see who can kind of take what games off of each other and how that affects the rest of the division. Yeah, I think um, for me, you could probably guess I got the Cardinals at the top as well, but I have them. I'm going to say they're winning 94 games, um, and the Cubs will come in second at 90 games. So I think they'll have a decent cushion. Um, then I'm going to put the Brewers third, more distance there. I'd say 85 wins for the Brewers. There's going to be regression there. I, I'm not as harsh as Zips is. We project them for 79, but I can definitely see them getting a good amount worse. Um, and then I'm going to have the Pirates coming in fourth. I'm going to say they're going to finish at 500, 81 wins even. And the Reds bring up the pack. I mean, you can't – 67 wins is just too crappy of a starting place for even as much as they've done, even if they add 10 wins. Okay, you're at 77. And uh, just for convenience, that's where I'm going to put them at, 77 wins. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's our NL Central standings. It's definitely going to be a really fun division to watch. Um, and I think the team that ends up coming out of there is going to be better than their record indicates just from the level of competition they're going to have to play all year. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's going to be it's going to be something to keep an eye on. Uh, and we're going to quickly wrap up this uh, week's episode by bringing back our random player discussion. And if I go to my little spreadsheet here and put it in, our random player of the week is Charlie Blackman of the Colorado Rockies, outfielder Chuck Nasty, as they call him. Um, first impressions of Charlie Blackman? Really good player. Really, really good player. And another one of the guys who we talked about it with the Hall of Fame stuff where just gets a bad rap for playing in Colorado. It's not really his fault. But um, 
Back-to-back All-Stars for him. Came in fifth in MVP voting in 2017. And followed that up with another really, really solid year. Not as good a year as that last year, uh, 2017 year. But still good enough last year for 860 OPS, uh, 115 OPS plus. Um, you know, just a really, really good center fielder for the Rockies. Kind of a guy that you you build that outfield around. Um, I know, I'm sure you have the numbers. Is he? I don't think he's a good defender, is he? Noah, he is not a good defender. Yeah. He actually had negative 28 defensive yeah. runs saved last year, yeah. which is uh, the worst in baseball, actually. And which is, I feel like people, t- I've heard people talk about his defense in terms of being a positive. Correct, right? Probably. Yeah. Like, you, people usually just pull that out of their ass. Yeah, because he's a fast guy. He's not a thought guy. He's a good player. Like center field. Yeah, All you, center fields are good, right? You think he's yeah. just good, but he is very not good at defense. That's quite horrible. Yeah. So um, definitely kind of a knock there, but his bat, I think, makes up for it a little bit. Um, I like to see him play corner outfield. I don't know who the Rockies could put put in his place, but um, definitely a guy that you, know, you could try out left and right, kind of see if you can hide him maybe a little bit more. But, uh, yeah, Charlie Blackman, what, what do you got? What do I got on Charlie Blackman? He's a very interesting guy, um, just by looking at him, of course, a weird-looking dude. Um, you say – Okay, I'll start. Yeah, it was 2017 year, six and a half win player. Awesome. The slug 601, awesome. 399 OBP, awesome. Um, yeah, call it Coors all you want. That's a sick line. Uh, but then again, Coors has been a huge boon to Charlie Blackman's career. Um, his over his career, his home OPS, uh, his home weighted runs created plus is 130. His away weighted runs created plus is 99. So take him away from course, and he's been a league average hitter, and pair that with his horrible defense uh, as his uh, maybe potential agent. If he wants to hire me, I would suggest that Charlie Blackman never leave the Colorado Rockies. Um, he seems to, uh, that's basically where he will not be a bad major league player and could actually be a good major league player. I think if you take him out of there, um, there's a very good chance that he is one of the worst players in baseball, <laughs> which might seem a little large. But if you're the worst defender and a league average hitter, probably doesn't bode well for you. I think you, you just got to go to corner outfield. Stop playing center. That could also be just a solution. Like, stop playing center field. That's a really hard position to play. Maybe the hardest. Um, but, like, yeah, maybe mix in a corner outfield spot for him. Uh but yeah, like you said, I guess if you take away from Coors, he's average. I don't know. It's kind of like it's different than when that's your home team. I think when if he actually were to get traded, yeah, I think both players hit well at home anyway, just because yeah. like you know fans are yelling and stuff. But that's a major difference. No, that's, a, that's a big time difference. So I think if I were Charlie Blackman's agent, I would say, hey, get me in corner outfield, and B, yeah, let's, let's stay in Colorado. It's nice, yeah. it's nice here. 20-year deal. I'll do it. Yeah, 20-year deal. Got some nice weed for you. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's Charlie Blackman for you. Um, not as good as people think, but still, I think, a really good baseball player. And it's tough to knock him for being at course. That is where he plays. So you kind of do have to take his numbers. You know, that's, that's the player he is. Um, so, yeah, that's Charlie Blackman. And that is our show. Thank you so much for sticking with us through this. Um, we're, again, we drop every Tuesday. We record on Monday nights. Um, and you can find us on Twitter at Baseball Seams and our website, BaseballSeams.com. Again, I will start writing again, I promise. Um, so check that out. And, uh, yeah, just wait for our drop every week. 
Peace out. Thanks for listening.